Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, beginning at verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Amen. Well, it was almost, uh, almost exactly 2,000 years ago. The place was a spot on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, the location was called the place of a skull, or the skull, by the locals. And at the time, when this was written, it was used as a place of execution. Three trees had been cut down and shaped and partly sunk into the ground. They may have been plain, upright trunks. They could have included a cross piece in the form of a T-shape or even the shape of the uh, crosses that some people wear as jewellery. Uh, but what we call a cross anyway, uh, it wasn't a Roman invention, of course, but they employed these uh, crosses as so many in history had as uh, instruments of execution. They tied or they nailed uh, criminals to these great crosses and left them to die. Anyone who survived longer than expected would be finished off by a soldier. Now, of all the millions of crosses uh, erected to kill people, these three crosses stand out. Because on the central cross of the three was hanged Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there may have been a number of Jews from Nazareth called Jesus. But this one had been hailed as Messiah. This one had performed miracles which could not be contested. This one had taught with authority. And this one, this man Jesus, had received the endorsement of Jehovah himself, who declared Jesus to be none other than his very own son. On the other two crosses, of course, were criminals, one on the right hand of Jesus and one on the left. They were both, I imagine, from a similar background. Uh, to, to each other and they were most certainly guilty of crimes against the state. <coughs> However, the two were predestined for very different futures in eternity. On the one side, <coughs> criminal number one, well he, I mean putting aside his offences against the empire, he was determined to live his life 
to the very last second, independently of God. And that is the greatest of all crimes. Like all the proud people in, in the world that we know, who want to live without God, and they die in that state, nothing but retribution lies ahead. On the other side, criminal number two. Although he was no less of a rebel than the other man, he had been elected from eternity to be forgiven of his sins. During his whole life, he could never have known that God would break through into his soul and save him when he was just a few hours from death. I always think this man was especially privileged because he was the only redeemed man in history to die alongside his saviour, redeemed by the blood of one just a few feet away. Well, at some point, that man was an object of Holy Spirit attention. And inwardly, he experienced the great spiritual change of regeneration. We call it sometimes an inscrutable work of God. Because when exactly it takes place is not, uh, is not uh, apparent to us. But we do know it took place here. Because, well, the man's behaviour changed dramatically in a Godward direction. At first, it would appear he joined in with his friends, uh, his criminal friends, uh, taunting of Christ. But in this very short space of time, he changed. Uh, God, it seemed, brought about an accelerated change in his heart. The man had very little time left and it had been ordained that he had a saving encounter with the saviour of the world before they both died. Well, I wanted to look today at these few words spoken by the repentant thief. Not only is this, a, uh, is this um, confession strong evidence of his uh, genuine conversion, but I want to argue that... His expression is an example of those good works which come naturally from a saving work of the Spirit of God. It must have been a surprise to this first thief to be rebuked by this felon he was being crucified with. But what a rebuke it was. What a doctrinally full outpouring this was. So let's... Take this apart a bit and uh, see what we can get from it. So beginning in verse 40 then we have the fear. That's our first subtitle, the fear, verse 40. A true knowledge of God must come through a fear of him. At the core of the, of, the, of the gospel itself is the principle that the sinner is in danger with God. Now, if an individual doesn't fear God, why on earth would they repent and ask for mercy?
fear of the consequences of sin must be present. So that will obviously include fear of the one who brings those consequences. God. Don't you fear God? He asks the other criminal. Don't you fear him? They were both going to die very shortly. Just like the Lord in, in the centre. What more appropriate attitude could there be in that situation than a full awareness of God's almighty and just nature? I spoke to you only recently about the necessity, didn't I? The necessity of a fear of God. So I'll try not to repeat myself too much, but I maintain that the notion of fearing the God of heaven is missing from Far too many pulpits uh, where, where, where I've, uh, that I've witnessed. So for many, this fear of God has become a toxic doctrine. Too negative for the modern audience. I strongly suspect an another reason why uh, th this, this theme is absent uh, in evangelical preaching so much is the mistaken idea that uh, fear is not something uh, a believer should feel towards God. We now have a loving relationship, don't we? Uh, we have a re this loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, uh, and all his wrath is spent, we're told. Well, that's all true. When, God's, when, when God converts us, there is a monumental shift in the relationship between <coughs> us and God, yes. However, that does not change his innate character. He is still the all-glorious God of heaven and earth. He is still the very God who will bring down judgment on the heads of sinners with great heaviness. So we continue to fear God. It's just that. The nature of the fear has changed for us. Because it's mixed with genuine affection from both parties. I've had the privilege down the years of preaching in the open air with many brethren, including some of the guys who preach here. And those men, I can assure you, don't hold back from uh, speaking about the fear of God. Now I've also been through many cities as you have and, and listened to some of the people on the street and my experience is that in almost every case exhortations to fear God are utterly absent. Now if any of you think I'm being too critical uh, let, me, let me be more clear. The avoidance of Speaking about the fear of God leads to a way of preaching which is alien to the, the preaching of the apostles and Jesus himself. It's alien to the scriptures. And also, we will find that people who frown on the idea of fearing God itself will invariably avoid other important matters like sin and righteousness and judgment it's inevitable so those people should join with us today and listen to this man listen to this man's testimony 
because we can all learn something from him. Verse 41, the acknowledgement. The acknowledgement. Well, referring to their condemned status, our thief continues. He reminds uh, his former criminal accomplice of their guilt. They'd broken the law of the land. And now they were receiving the punishment uh, which was uh, due to them. Now, remember that the Romans weren't engaging in some uh, sort of ad hoc random act of uh, retribution here, uh, just a random act of cruelty. No, um, whether we agree with the sentence or not, the fact is that the law at the time promised the death penalty for certain crimes, and this pair, knowing this, went out and committed crimes anyway. Now, it's one thing to, um, to believe, to accept that you are guilty of something, uh, but it's another to openly admit it. That's uh, more rare. Uh, to acknowledge you deserve punishment and say that that punishment is fair. Given the revelation from God this guy had experienced, can we not read maybe a bit more into his confession? Yeah, it takes integrity to uh, openly agree, someone to openly agree they're breaking the law of the land. But we should at least consider here that this thief also understands he's contravened a higher law, the law of God himself. When a sinner is uh, baptised by the Holy Spirit at conversion, they get a much clearer view of who God is. And the fear of God that we just spoke about, it always, in that situation, it always extracts a confession from the sinner. And so just as a fear of God is a necessary part of, of genuine repentance, it so is a full and frank confession of sin. And sin, as you know, is defined using the law of God. So put simply, people either act in a way they're not supposed to, or they don't act in those ways they are supposed to. Now we can avoid a long discussion today about what the law of God is and which men are supposed to conform to by using the two commandments that Jesus gave. Just two. Men are to love God with their whole beings. Number two, they're to love other people. By that standard alone, all have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The repentant sinner is to express to God both their guilt and the fairness of the eternal condemnation that that guilt brings. Staying in verse 41, uh, the innocence. The innocence. Well, the thief had told the other man they were both guilty. But not this man. Not this man. He's done nothing wrong. Now, maybe this thief didn't have a fully-fledged 
you know, doctrinal understanding of the sinlessness of Christ. <coughs> but he knew enough about him. It was, I'd suggest, the perfect consistency of Jesus' good behaviour, good acts, that was evidence enough for this man to say with confidence that he was wholly innocent. But this man wasn't the first and would not be the last to uh, have had this impression on him about Jesus. If we just take the few hours uh, surrounding Jesus' death, we find several testimonies to his innocence. We have the governor, Pilate. He, he told the Jews, uh, I find no fault in this man. Pilate's own wife, she urged him not to get involved in this case uh, because Jesus was a righteous man. And then, of course, in the moments immediately after Jesus died, a hardened Roman centurion confessed him to be innocent. Whatever this repentant thief understood about the nature of of Christ. His clear statement about <coughs> this innocence serves to remind us of this important doctrine. As the Son of God, Jesus is, is obviously divine, and <coughs> although there are elements of the, the incarnation which are mysteries to us, we can confidently say that as God, Jesus is Sinless. As a sinner is targeted by the Holy Ghost. In a saving way. He sees Jesus as the innocent lamb of God. Slain for sinners. And as he considers the high characteristics of Jesus. He begins to realise the supreme uh, suitability of him as saviour of the world. Verse 42. The call. The call. He said unto Jesus, Lord. He said unto Jesus, Lord. The man on the cross was undergoing a, a dramatic change. God was changing him from a, a lost sinner to a redeemed child of God. And this latest convert finishes his rebuke uh, of his fellow and he, he turns to Jesus. He directs his gaze on the man in the central cross and he calls him Lord. Lord. Now if we took this uh, word Lord as used by the condemned man and considered it in, in isolation. It would be fair to say it could mean nothing more than master. That's a legitimate uh, use of it. However, um, you know the same the same Greek word they're used for common or garden rulers is the same as what's used when referring to the God of heaven. So, taking the whole section. I'm building an idea from that. My guess is the man on the cross 
was addressing Jesus as Lord based on his belief that this was the Son of God, not a mere rabbi of the highest order, but as the Son of God himself. So the man uh, addresses Jesus before making his petitions. That's what we do, isn't it? We, we address uh, God. We, when we pray to him, we address him at the outset. Now, I'd not make a doctrine out of that, but for me and probably for you, we, we, we see this as uh, a way of showing respect to God. Uh, so we begin, Heavenly Father, or, you know, Lord in heaven, or Almighty God, and so on. But the, the most important point is that he called on the Lord. Some of, you will, will, some of you will remember a few weeks ago when I was uh, going through the book of Joel. And we came across this powerful promise in Joel, and it said, All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, in fact... We saw that the Apostle Paul uh, reiterated that uh, to, to reinforce its importance. <clears throat> All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All who wish to receive forgiveness of sins must take their plea to God. Obviously they must call out to him in the confidence that the scriptures give. The confidence that he'll listen, that he will listen. And if theirs is a prayer of sincere repentance, their calling out to God will result in their salvation every time. What a promise. What a giant promise. What little excuse those have who die in their sins. They have but to call out to God in humility, acknowledging the greatness of their sin and the greatness of God's ability to forgive those sins. There's another detail worth mentioning here before we move on. It, because in Romans 10, Paul makes this argument. He makes an argument about the necessity of preachers of the gospel. He says, we need preachers to deliver the message. Why? Well, so the people will hear. Why do they need to hear? Because they can't call on a saviour if they don't hear about him first. If they don't know about him. But Paul's logical progression of thought begins with. How can they call on him. They have not believed. In whom they have not believed. How can they call on him. It would seem friends that. When our. When our man here. Um, called on the Lord to save him. He already had belief. And. Why I mention this is because I, I, I want to stress that it wasn't a result of some natural realisation of his guilt which prompted him to call on the Lord. The whole sequence of events which led to his deliverance began with the work of God and we always do well to remind ourselves that salvation uh, is of the Lord. In verse 42 still, the remembrance, the remembrance. <coughs> Lord, remember me. 
Remember me. What a strange thing for someone to say to a person who in a short time would be dead. His plea makes sense only if we accept that this man believed this wasn't the end for Jesus. This was not the end for Jesus. And he, he may not have known how the event of the crucifixion would end for his new master. But he knew this wasn't the final chapter. He knew there was a future for Jesus Christ after this day. Now, with the availability to us of all that's been recorded in Scripture, we have full confidence that the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ was far from the end of the story. We see this as just another stage in his mission to save people from their sins. It's hard to imagine this thief had spent a great deal of time with his head in the Bible for obvious reasons, but maybe he did, maybe as a youth, you know, he did and then went off the rails, who knows. But Many well-educated Jews had spent their entire lives, their entire lives with their head in the Hebrew Scriptures. And yet, they remained blind. For the most part, they remained blind to the emergence of their own Messiah, even. And this reminds us of the need for illumination by the Holy Spirit, you see. These things, says the Apostle Paul, these things are spiritually discerned. Spiritually. Implying the need for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Intellectual energy, friends, will get you only so far in understanding the truth of God. We need the Spirit. Anyway, the Scriptures uh, do prophesy about Jesus being raised from the dead. And a good example is found in the Psalms. In the 16th Psalm, don't know whether the thief ever read this, but David's written words, which are aimed at God, uh, are also ascribed to Jesus. And so those words of David's form a prayer of Jesus to his father, in which he confesses his full confidence that he'll not be left in the grave to rot. In other words... He'll be raised from the dead. When we go to sinners with the gospel, um, it's needful for them to believe in this resurrection of Christ. Calvary wasn't enough. Dare I say, we can speak about, we can speak about the death of Christ being a full satisfaction for the penalty of our sins. Yes, we can even describe it as I do, as the central event in God's purposes but the Bible makes it clear that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead Christianity <coughs> would be pointless we may as well go home go to pub whatever Christianity would be pointless without the resurrection this man was in a really unique position he knew he was about to die. Maybe if circumstances were different, he would uh, ask for something else. But he knows it's all over for him. 
So he makes this simple request in this bright future that he believed uh, Christ would experience. This man humbly asks that Jesus would look kindly on him. He would look kindly on him, that he'd remember him, that he'd comfort him again, that he'd rescue him from the clutches of the grave, as indeed Jesus was too. Still in verse 42, the kingdom now. The kingdom. Remember me, he says, when you come into your kingdom. Or when you come into... Or when you come in the glory of your kingdom. Now, kingdom is used in a variety of ways in the scriptures. And so we can't be completely sure what this man meant when he used it. He could have held the traditional Jewish belief that, well, the Messiah would come to deliver Israel from Imperial Rome. Christ would set himself up as a benevolent uh, like a dictator, if you like, of a Jewish utopia. The thief may have believed that at the moment of his death, Jesus would ascend to heaven and take his position back on the throne. Both beliefs are wrong. Both beliefs are wrong, of course, but this man's end-time views are not the most important matter here. The point is rather this. In using the term, your kingdom, the man was acknowledging Jesus Christ as king. Not just a king, but the king above all kings. The king of everything. Now this evening, God willing, I'll be talking to you about the anointing of Christ and this role that Jesus took on, which was made official by his anointing, included that of king. And as king, Jesus was the best person for this man to go to. What a gracious revelation, revelation God had made to this man to give him such a, an understanding of the nature and the mission of Christ. Jesus Christ is king, and as an all-powerful king, he gets to decide, he gets to decide uh, who will make up his subjects. He gets to decide who will be citizens of his kingdom. Uh, let me be clear about this. When we refer to his kingdom, I, I know some people when they hear his kingdom, they, they think of heaven. The kingdom of God doesn't mean heaven, although they are connected. It's more complicated than that, but... Really, all who trusted in a future Messiah and all who have trusted in an historical Messiah are made citizens of his kingdom. They own him as king. Now, the, the, according to the New Testament, the, the kingdom was ushered in in its fullest sense with the incarnation of Christ and the, the events uh, which followed. It also, yes, has an eternal dimension to it. It's an everlasting kingdom. But it's also a present reality for all who have Christ as their king. It means that if you're a believer today, you are presently in God's kingdom. Well, throughout history, there's been a, if you like, a mass immigration uh, into the kingdom of God. And this immigration is unique. 
in that every country and tribe and language is represented. And it's also unique because it's under the full control of God. Only his elect people will ever enter this, this uh, kingdom. All of them will be processed in the same way. They all enter under the terms of the gospel. And each one who is admitted is admitted on the basis of the merits of Christ alone. Well, I did say that this man's understanding of Christ as king was the most important point here. But we shouldn't ignore his desire to be, to be part of that future which Jesus would be the head of. No matter how vague or mistaken his understanding was at this point about life after death, he wanted to be where Christ was. That's the point. He wanted to be wherever Christ was. To be with Christ is far better. Yeah? Well, the promise to this new convert from Jesus was a future in paradise. Now, the Bible's silent on the nature of this new world. You know, unless you... If you're someone who reads, say, Revelation quite literally, then you would disagree. You would expect the world to come to look like something in Revelation. Um, but we won't argue about that. But as far as I can see, the Bible is silent on the details of what paradise is. But still, we pay attention to the word that Jesus chose to describe this place. Don't we? He chose this word. He chose to paint a picture of a garden in this man's imagination. A beautiful garden. And just maybe Jesus was hinting at an Eden-like world, but with all possibility of sin removed. <coughs> this man's future is the same as all who've been united to Christ down the ages. All of them, all of you who belong to God here this morning, and even the guy in the pulpit, by the grace of God, will inherit uh, that eternal future. So from the unlikeliest source comes this quite magnificent expression. By the grace of God, a man who was at the end of his life, and what, what, what a terrible end that was. Managed to come up with this. And we can trace in this. The way God deals with sinners. You know. Think about the sinner. His new awareness allows him to see God in all his greatness. It, it results in a fear of God. He openly acknowledges his sin. He recognises the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He confesses Jesus as Lord. And his belief moves him to call on Christ in all humility. And then he reveals his belief in Christ's kingship and kingdom. 
He asks for mercy. And he receives mercy. What about this other man, this his companion? What does the future have in store for him? Well, there's to be a resurrection of the human race, of course. And the immediate purpose of the resurrection is judgment. And the Son of God, Christ Jesus, will be the one to sit in that judgment seat. Consider, friends, how at Calvary, one thief was separated from the other by the cross of Christ. Now, at the judgment, the effects of the cross of Christ will divide those men all over again. One on his right and one on his left. Again, one repented in life, the other didn't. One received mercy, the other didn't. One will be escorted into paradise. The other one will be dragged to that awful lake of fire. Aren't we glad Jesus stayed on that cross and suffered? It was horrible. Aren't we glad he stayed? The only reason that thief was delivered from his sin and all the consequences of it was because Jesus remained on the cross and suffered the wrath of Almighty God right to the very last dreg. It's the only reason any of us have any hope. But what did this other man want then? Well, he wanted Jesus to come down off the cross. Perhaps call on some angelic host to come down and Jesus be lifted off the cross, be healed of all his wounds, and then turn to this thief and do the same for him and set him on his way. Rescue him, heal him, and set him on his way. Set him on his way so we can go and sin even more and then die anyway. Appear at the judgment seat anyway, only this time with even more sins counted against his name. What short-sightedness he had. And he's no different from the people we encounter today. You, you know as well as I do that the unbelievers that we know, they, they have no thoughts of eternity, not really. Their plans include planning a career, you know, having a family, throw some holidays in, bits of recreation perhaps. Start planning for the retirement. They'll get the calculator out and work out to the penny how much money they're going to have in their retirement. And that, friends, is where their plans seem to end. Well, uh, the people I know anyway, they, uh, whether that's representative, I don't know, but they seem to all have a faint belief in life after death, some peaceful existence, and everyone goes there. Every criminal and blasphemer in the family, they, they, they'll be there. In our witness to them, in our witness to this world, we urge these people to turn their whole way of thinking upside down, to understand that their life is 
irrelevant when compared to where they will spend eternity. But unless God reveals the stupidity of their thinking, they'll remain in it and face disaster. So sad, isn't it? Last, last uh, Sunday, last Sunday evening, I spent the, I spent the night um, with my cousin at the bedside of my uncle who was dying. And so uh, my uncle was unconscious. And there was no chance of him uh, ever uh, being awake again, really. And so he's there, and me and my cousin, we're, we're, we're talking. Occasionally, I'll maybe shout something to my uncle, because he's deaf. But I believe sometimes they can hear you, even if they're unconscious. And, and then we carried on talking. And then it come to 1.54 a.m., I remember the time. 1.54 a.m. And then my uncle closed his mouth and he took his last breath. And although he'd reached the age of 90, not a bad age, uh, I doubt he'd have come to terms with death. I mean, few people do. I mention that because there's always less time than people think. There's less time than people think so this is why we urge people to go to Christ while they can. Our sense of urgency isn't because, you know, like the Arminians say, if we don't reach them, they'll be lost and it'll be our, our fault. And this, it, it's, it's not so much that. God will save his people with or without you and me. As it happens, he's pleased. He's pleased to use you and me. To give us that privilege of sharing the gospel uh, in soberness and also with a sense of urgency, but an urgency born out of love for, the, for those people, not an urgency based on uh, a wrong understanding of God's uh, sovereignty. God will save his people and we're privileged to be used by him in that way. In the past, I've used this... Uh, Example of the repentant thief as evidence that salvation is all by grace. So I tell people, here's an example of someone physically restrained from doing any works. And my conclusion then was that this conversion must have been set up exactly for this purpose. To be an example for all time of saving faith which didn't need works. I didn't, I didn't invent that argument, of course, it's been popular for years, I've heard it from many people, but I now believe that I was wrong. If anything, this is an example of an extremely sure Christian life being full of good works. What do I mean? The reason I use that example in that way, it... It's because the man's hands and feet were tied to a tree. So if we think that good works is stuff we do with our hands, then the illustration worked. But works for God are not restricted to what we do physically. Good works can be in the form of speech or even thought. 
Think about the opposite case for a second. Think about bad works. The Bible lists uh, envy as one of those bad works. Envy. Envy is restricted to your mind. And so it makes sense that if the works of the flesh include actions, speech and thoughts, then so will good works be expressed in the same variety of ways, don't you think? And we don't need to, we don't need this uh, scripture anyway to prove the point of salvation by grace alone. The Bible's full of it anyway. This event, these good works by this regenerated man should instead remind us that having been saved by grace, we're expected to go on and do good works in God's name. One author commenting on this uh, statement by the thief, he says this, it is often said that the thief on the cross does not evidence his faith by works, for he has the equivalent of a deathbed conversion. But the testimony he gives for Jesus in his last moments is one of the most eloquent evidences of faith in the Bible. And I agree. This man's example should provoke us to good works. It should remind us that a faith without works is a dead faith. And it should challenge us to ensure that whatever time we have left uh, now is spent uh, in the service of God. Amen. Amen. Amen.